Well, hey, let's get into God's word this morning. And so uh, go ahead and grab your Bible. Uh, If you brought one, hopefully you did. Um, We are going to spend um, the remainder of our time in in the word of God together. Uh, This is what we do each week. We open God's word, uh, the scriptures, and we wanna hear from him. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got you covered this morning. You can um, grab one underneath one of the seats in front of you. I'd encourage you to do that. If you don't own a Bible, take that home. Uh, That is our gift to you. If you're uh, joining us from home, we're so glad that you're here and can join with us in this way, and I would say the same to you. Find a Bible. If you don't have one, download one. Find one somewhere. I want you to be able to see this for uh, yourself and see these truths. And we've been in a series. uh, We've been walking through different psalms, kind of jumping around in the um, Psalter, as it's called, and looking at various promises of God, and uh, specifically these promises around God's character and who he is. And we've been looking at things that are always true, always true. Uh, These are things that are always true of God. And so far in this series, um, we have seen uh, about God uh, that he is always with us. Uh, We've seen that he is our dwelling place and he is our shepherd. And then if you were with us last week, we saw that he is always good, always good. And as we get ready to open our Bibles this morning, I just uh, have a question for you that I think would help sort of frame up what we're talking about and looking at this morning. So it'd be helpful. Um, can you think of uh, a time or situation in your life um, that uh, was a difficult situation? I'm kind of leaving it fairly vague in, in general, um, but uh, can you think of a difficult situation that you uh, are walking through or have walked through? Uh, for many of you, uh, that's not hard to think of because you know exactly you're in one right now. And you're like, I know the situation. I'm, I'm in this situation right now, and uh, this is difficult. Others of you, maybe uh, things are in a good spot, and you have to think back just a little bit, but I don't think we have to go too far back. Can you think of a difficult situation, something trying, something uncertain, something painful, whatever um, you know, way you would describe it? You got that situation? Got something in mind? I'm not going to ask you to share it, just, just for you. So here's my question for you. If you knew the outcome right now, so say you're in a situation, if you knew the outcome of how it was going to end, would that change your view of the situation right now? You don't know how it's going to end, but you know either good or bad, you know the outcome. Even if it's bad, it's like, well, I just assume no, right? I'd rather know right now and, and know what's coming. Would that change your view of the situation. Well, let me take it a step further. What if, what if you knew that the situation you're in or walking through or, or think back to when you were, if you knew it would end well? What if you knew that in the end, all things were going to work out, all things were going to be okay, all things were going to end well? How would that affect the way that you are walking through the situation now? You see, the drama, the anxiety, the difficulty oftentimes that we face is created in the uncertainty, right? I don't know how this is going to end or I don't know that this is going to end well. And so as I'm walking through it, as I'm living in it, it is difficult. There's anxiousness, there's pain that's present in it. Um, We are uh, right now, last night was uh, game five of the NBA uh, finals. Um, and uh, for those of you that are not really into sports ball, um, that is uh, just to kind of let you know, like if you hear people talking about the Bucks, right, or the, the NBA, um, that it's our team, that's Wisconsin's Milwaukee Bucks, are in the finals for the first time in almost uh, 50 years. And um, it's, been over, it's been 50 years since they've won it. And so they have a chance to win it all next Tuesday, 
right? And so, um, and it's exciting to watch. Many of you have watched and you've kept up with it and, and you've sat at the edge of your seat waiting and watching and they've been close games, right? It's been, it's been exciting and it's closely matched and you don't know the outcome. That's what brings the drama. That's what brings the anxiety, right? It's like, are they going to win? Are they going to do it? Are they going to be able to? And it's been, and it's, it was, the series was tied. Now they're pulled into the lead. And so you're like, you're kind of there and you want it. Now, if you take away either of those things, right? If you take away uh, how, how, like the, 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 the closeness of the match or, or not knowing the outcome, say you knew how it was going to end, right? Like you, you were visited from um, Marty McFly, right? And he told you what was going to happen and, and you kind of knew, you know, what was going to win. All of a sudden, the, the, the excitement goes away. You're like, oh, I know, I know how this goes. If you know the outcome of games and you still watch them anyways, like say you record it or whatever, save it. And um, you, that's, that's, that's the definition of a sports fanatic. Like you're not watching it to find, you just want to see it happen. You want to see it play out. Okay. That's like next level. I'm not there. If I know the game, I don't really have a lot of desire. If I don't know the game, sometimes I'll like go dark or, or games will sort of start. I won't be able to see them. And I'm like, don't tell me. I want to watch it. I want to see it. I want to experience it. Why? Because it's exciting if you don't know. Now, maybe change it up and say you don't know the outcome, but you can understand where it's going, right? Like say they're not playing the sons and they're playing a group of middle school boys. We don't know the outcome. I mean, I guess, I guess it could go differently than we expect, but we know the outcome, right? Like, you know, it's certain. Victory is certain. They're going to school, these boys, and uh, it's not going to go well for them. All of them will, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll be very, very disappointed. It's not even going to be a match or a competition, right? I mean, it's totally unfair. So here's the thing. When it comes to sports, and I know, I get it. Some of you are like, this illustration's lost on me. I could care nothing for that. Just hang with me. You can understand like the concept, right? So when it comes to sports, it's exciting to not know the outcome. It is fun. Like that's where the excitement comes from is the anxiety of like, oh man, how's this going to end? What's going to happen? How's this, how's this going to play out? Super fun. Really exciting. When it comes to our life, right? Not as much. Just tell me the end. Tell me what's happening. Tell me what's coming. Give me the outcome. Let me know what's coming. And certainly, if there's a way that I can know I'm going to win, right, that I can know victory is certain, then I'll take that. I want to know that it changes the way that we watch it. We would rather not have the, the drama and the anxiety and all of that. Well, here's where we find ourselves this morning, is we're going to see and understand that that's not how life is. We don't know. We don't know. Or do we? <laughs> or do we? Psalm 20 uh, we've been looking at these promises of God. Today, we're looking at this, this promise, which says this, that God is always powerful. God is always powerful. Um, we could maybe even subtitle it, God is always victorious, right? In his power, he brings the victory. And so we're going to be in Psalm 20 this morning. It's just nine verses. What I want to do is I want to read through it in its entirety, and then we're going to walk our way through it. But we're going to see this truth of God working out in the uncertainty and showing that he is always powerful in whatever situation comes along. Let me read it. You can follow along in your copy of scripture, Psalm 20, beginning in verse one. Let me actually read, um, starting to the choir master, a Psalm of David, verse one. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy 
over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed and he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is God's word for us this morning. And what I want to do before we start kind of walking through it, I want to give it a little bit of context because it really helps to frame and understand this psalm that we're looking at and and sort of how it's structured and sort of what what type of psalm it is. And I promise you'll find this this helpful. But it helps to know there's various types of psalms. Um, Generally speaking, most psalms are sort of structured in a similar way. Uh, They have um, an introduction, and then there's uh, sort of the body of the psalm followed by the conclusion. And we kind of see this here. There's a bit of an introduction, there's kind of the body of it, and then a a conclusion. But but there's a key difference between a lot of different psalms. There's, There's different types of psalms and kind of their content and the way that they're structured and sort of the context in which they were used in worship or at the temple or whatever it might be. And so there's lots of different ways you can kind of group or categorize uh, psalms, but there's sort of three primary types that we see of the psalms. Um, If you were taking notes, the first type of psalm is praise. Uh, You'll see lots of praise psalms. And these are an appeal to self or to others to praise God uh, coupled with descriptions of why he is worthy of praise. So these psalms speak of his name or speak of his deeds or his character or what he has done in all of these ways. And it leads us, leads you, leads the reader, leads the congregation to respond in worship to God, praising God for who he is. And so if you wanted to look at some psalms of praise, you could look at Psalm 8, Psalm 29, 33, the last five psalms of the Psalter, 146 through 150, are all psalms of praise. So that's the first primary type. The second primary type is psalms of lament. Maybe you've heard about psalms of lament. Um, These are um, often um, sort of sad in tone, right? Expressing uh, pain and and discontentment or or difficulty. Um, uh, and, And what they are, what psalms of lament are, is an appeal directly to God for the rescue from trouble or distress, and so these are in the place of discomfort, in the place of uncertainty, calling out for God and asking God, would you work? Would you move? Would you respond? And it's in the midst of it. So you could look at Psalm 22, 74, 88, 130. These are all Psalms of lament. And then the third primary type is Psalms of thanksgiving. And these are somewhere between um, aware of the pain, but different from lament, um, it is uh, in the past. And so it's affirming of the character of God. So whereas lament is like, man, I'm living through this right now as I'm singing this, as I'm saying this, as I'm writing this, uh, Psalms of Thanksgiving look back to times of difficulty and pain and say, God, I see how you worked there and I'm praising you, giving thanks for the way that you were faithful in that. And so we see Thanksgiving given, thanking God for the way that he has worked in the past. Um, Some examples of this would be Psalm 104, 107, 116, 136, if you want to look up some of those later. So this, um, those are the three kind of primary types. This is sort of unique. This psalm is unique because it's not one of those. And so oftentimes they kind of fit in those three categories. This one is one of the few um, that we would call a royal psalm. 
royal psalm. And uh, royal psalms, there's only, like, depending on how you break it down, like nine to 11 of them, as most um, uh, kind of commentators, there's not like a guide that you kind of go to and it says, this is a royal psalm, right? Like, you kind of look at it and sort of see how it's structured and the content and, and get there. But there's like nine to 11 royal psalms, and this would be one of them. And what this is, royal psalms focus on matters of the king and his duty. And so this is directly related to King David and uh, what he is called to do, what he is charged with as king over the people. And um, this is one of them. Uh, other royal psalms are Psalm 18, Psalm 21 um, would be other royal psalms. Now there's other psalm types outside of these. There's liturgical, there's wisdom and Torah, there's some other kind of miscellaneous that don't really fit in the category or kind of overlap with, with different ones. But this is what we come to this morning. I took the time and wanted to unpack all of that because I think one, it's helpful as you read through the psalms that it's not all the same. You don't approach every psalm the exact same way. So each psalm that you come to it's helpful to ask, like, well, what kind of psalm is this? What's the context? Who was writing it? Where were they writing to? All of those things are really helpful in understanding. This one, being a royal psalm, you can see very quickly, this was used by the people of God, primarily, actually, even the army of God's people, the Israelites, before going off to battle, going off to war, or embarking on some military endeavor, whatever it might be. And this is actually sung or proclaimed by the people of God, sort of to the king, and it was sort of a prayer for and over the king, speaking to God on behalf of the king. And so when you read it in that context, it definitely frames it up differently, right? May the Lord answer you, being the king. May the Lord answer you, king, in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary. May he give you support from Zion, okay? So it, it, it just really changes the understanding. If you understand who's talking, who they're talking to, they're praying to the Lord on behalf of the king, you kind of see this picture of what it is. I say all that to say this. This royal psalm, particularly this one, is a great one to look at to see the power of God in the midst of difficulty, I mean, they are going off to fight for the people of God in the name of God. And danger is certain. Uncertainty is on the horizon. A difficulty is coming. And they are asking for God's power to be at play and be at work in the situation. Now, one thing that's so cool about royal psalms is we see their ultimate fulfillment not in an earthly king, not like in King David or King Solomon or any of the other kings. We see the ultimate fulfillment of royal psalms in the perfect king, the true king, the coming king for them, Messiah, Jesus, Jesus Christ, he is the fulfillment of all of these psalms. So oftentimes in the New Testament, when it references back to royal psalms, it actually uses the language referring to Christ, what was, called, what was referred to as the king. And it's like, this is the king. This is what has happened. We're gonna see that this morning. But the other cool thing about royal psalms is this, is that as the people of God called out to God and trusted on his character in the same way for us as the community of God, we can in the same way see God's character still at play still at work, still present, and his faithfulness is seen even in our lives in the same way that it was for the lives of God's children, his nation, the people of Israel. And so we're gonna see that this morning for us. And so here's the truth that I think, one of the truths that sort of rises to the top that I think is, is most central in this, and I just wanna give this to you. I like to do this because it helps to frame where we're going and what we see, but it's this. Because God is always powerful, Right? We said this is the truth, this is the promise. God is always powerful. Because God is always promise, powerful, it is all right that I'm not. 
And man, this is something we need because in this world, in this day, in this age, we are so in need of like having control, having it all figured out, knowing where we're going, knowing what's happening, having a plan, having some action, you know, being able to accomplish it. And here's the truth is that I'm not, I'm not all powerful. I can't control all things. I wish I could. I wish I could control more than I can, but I can't. And so because I'm not, it's okay because God always is. He's always powerful. And this is the truth that they cling to as they go off to fight, as they go off to stand up for the nation, for God. Among the nations, before the nations, they are trusting that the God that they are fighting for and is with them is always powerful and always able to work in these things. This is what we're gonna see this morning as we walk through the psalm together. Let me just pray and then we're going to walk our way through it. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the truth of your word and for the promises that you have for us this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that this promise, like the others, would ring true in our life, that we would, uh, so many times, God, we know this. We know this to be true. We can say this or we believe this in our mind, but it has not made its way to our heart. And God, our, our lives and the decisions that we make don't reflect uh, belief in this. And so, God, I ask this this morning. I just ask that you would... Um, that you would guide us in our understanding this morning, that we would see you more clearly, that we would understand this truth more fully, Lord, and that we would apply it uh, to our lives. And so I pray that you will lead us now as we um, study your word together. God, transform our hearts and our minds by your spirit's working. Um, we ask that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's go back. Let's look at that first five verses again, now knowing the context and, and place of it. I think it's so helpful kind of knowing this. Look at this. Uh, verse one. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of Jacob, uh, God of Jacob, rather, protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Here's the first truth that we see regarding God's power present in the life of his people. It's this, is that God's help is available. Ask for it. God's help is available. Ask for it. The people are going off to battle, and they are asking God to help them. Why? Because it is available to them. God has made his help, his power, his working available, and so they are asking for it. And they're asking for it on behalf of themselves, on behalf of the king. And we see that they are able to ask for it because of, I think, kind of resting in two truths. The first truth is who God is. They are able to ask for God's help because of who God is. See this in verse one. It says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. That's the personal name. Again, we said this um, last week that when you see Lord in all caps, it's, it's uh, the English way of kind of signifying that's Yahweh, the personal name of God. There's this relationship there. They, this is a God that's known. And even in that name, it's a promise that he, uh, he is and he will be and he is working. We could unpack the name Yahweh some other day, but that is present even in that name. But it says, may May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble and may the name of God of Jacob protect you. See, they're pointing to and, 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 and referencing this name that God was known by. Oftentimes, it's a sort of shorthand, but if you've been around the Old Testament and kind of know this, God was known by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? 
And being the God of Abraham, Isaac, of Jacob was a way of referencing and reminding that he was a covenantal God. He was a God over a people, a specific people. If you know the story, God called Abraham out of the place he was living and said, Abraham, I have a purpose for you. I have a promise for you. I want to work in your life. I want to do great things in this world, and I want to use you to do it. And there were sort of three parts of that promise. He promised he was going to take him to a place, that he was going to give him a land. He promised that he was going to make him into a great nation, into a great people, which at the time was a crazy promise because Abraham and his wife were old. They were sort of advanced in years. Um, sorry, they were mature, very mature, right? And um, that's, that's the word we use, right? And, and, um, and so the promise of a, a, they didn't have any kids. And so this was, this was kind of a miraculous promise to be offering that he was going to make them into a great nation. But on top of that, he says the world would be blessed through them, that all peoples would be blessed. And so these were parts of the promise. Now, it just wasn't, it wasn't a contract like you and I might make a contract together where if you hold up your end of the bargain, I'm gonna hold up my end of the bargain. This was a covenant. God made a covenant. It was one-sided. He says, Abraham, I am going to do this for you. And he made a covenant with Abraham. It was renewed with his son, Isaac, who came because of a miracle and working of God. And his son, Isaac's son, Jacob, who was later known as Israel. His name changed to Israel. And so God was known as this covenantal God, this, this personal God. He, made this, he had this, this covenant with his people and they were called the children of God. And he was a personal, known, relational God to his people. He was the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And so they're saying, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. When the Psalms or the scriptures, especially the Psalms, uses that phrase, the name, it's not saying that there's some power in this name. When you say God of Jacob, it's like that's the magic words, right? You ever try and like, you know, you get locked out of the house and your little sister or little brother, you know, is like, what's the, what's the password, right? What's the secret word? You gotta say it, right? This isn't the name that like unlocks things. What it's saying by saying the name, it's pointing to the very person of God. His character and who he is is tied up in his name. And so the name is often put in scripture for the person himself, the person of God himself, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. So the security, the ability to ask for help is found in who God is. He is a God that has made himself known, that has made covenantal promises to his people, and so his help is available because he has made it so. This recounts the revelation of God to his people. See, the help is available because of that truth but the, of who God is, but the second truth is his relationship with us. See, not just who he is and what he's done, but his relationship with his people. And so the same is true for us today is that we can have a relationship with him. In this relationship, he hears and responds to prayers he works on behalf of his people. See, look at what it says in verse two. It says, may he send you help from the sanctuary, give you support from Zion. This is where God's very presence and glory was dwelt. And we don't have time to unpack that, although we certainly could. That was just so many examples and pictures of, of God's presence and his glory seen in the sanctuary in the city of Jerusalem, particularly the temple where they worship together. But may his May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. You see, this is pointing to the relationship that God had, not just with his people, but especially with the king. So you have to understand, there's two things kind of going on there, right? It says, may he regard with, remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. See, burnt sacrifices were given. Do you know why? Burnt sacrifices were given for the forgiveness of sins. 
And so the king wasn't exempt from this, okay? It's not like he's, he's in charge and he's sitting on the throne and so he didn't have to do this. No, the king oftentimes, especially in key times of the, of the, the nation's history or before going off to battle, the king would offer burnt sacrifice. Why? Well, because the king, like you and I, like every one of the people, was an unholy man, unrighteous, full of sin, full of deceit, full of deception. His heart was broken like ours like yours and like mine. And so he needed to offer burnt sacrifice to receive the forgiveness of God. God had made a way through his temple sacrifices that if you offer this animal in this situation or, or this life is taken in this situation, that there is the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of blood. Okay, this was God's idea. And he set this whole elaborate system up and there were times when that was offered on behalf of the people. The whole nation would gather together and, and the sins of the people were offered, but there was individual sacrifice as well. And so the king is offered burnt sacrifice and he has asked for God to show grace and to show mercy, undeserved mercy, and forgive him of his sin against a holy and righteous God. So that's one part. But the other part, the offering, that's the other side of it. It didn't end with this burnt sacrifice, just paying for sin, he would then respond and he would offer offerings. Offerings were same sacrifices, but it was those of thanksgiving and praise. And so this relationship was restored. Sin was forgiven. And then it's like, God, I'm worshiping you and I'm praising you and I'm lifting your name high. God, who are you that you would regard me with your favor and that you would forgive me, an unclean man with unclean lips, right? Like this is the, the language we see of the scriptures that we are unworthy of God's forgiveness. And so what they're saying here is the people are saying this, they're saying, hey, may he remember your offerings and regard with you your, your burnt sacrifices. If we don't understand the context of that, what we might be tempted to do is think that, hey, God, would you remember all that I've ever done for you? And maybe you've prayed a prayer like this. God, don't you remember, right? Don't you remember all those years that I spent in church, that I've spent uh, you know, living this way, or I've tried your way, God? I have, I have lived so righteously and so holy before you. I have, I have been faithful in this. I have been a good soldier in this. And, and we might point to God in times of difficulty and say, God, why am I experiencing this? Haven't I listened to you? Haven't I always been good? And what he's saying here, what he's saying here is not that. They're not saying, hey, look at all the good that you've done. You've earned God's ear. What he's saying is, remember God. Remember the relationship which you have made possible. This restored and right relationship through the forgiveness of sins and through your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace offered. And because he remembers the relationship, then would he then grant your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. Man, that would be um, a terrible verse to rip out of context and put that on a coffee cup, right? Or like um, kind of cross stitch and hang on your wall. May he grant all your heart's desires, fulfill all your plans. If we're honest, I know some of us, we kind of feel this at times, but if we're honest, I don't think any of us really want God to do this, right? Because our heart's desires, the plans that you and I have, I think if we're honest, we would say that's pretty flawed sometimes. And so, so many times like, God, would you change my heart here? Because I, I don't think I want the right thing, Right? We think we can all acknowledge that. What they're saying here is this, is that in that right relationship, in that restored relationship, as your heart moves closer to God's and it's more aligned with God and what he wants and what he wants and what he desires, in this place, the desire of the king is this, is that God's people will be protected and that God's name would be glorified. They're not going off to like expand and just like expand the kingdom 
right? And build up more fame for the nation of Israel or more, more goods, more riches, none of that. When, when the people of Israel, God was very clear about his boundaries. And he said, I give you this land and this is the land that I've given you. So what they were doing is they were defending the people of God, and they were defending the glory of God in that place. And so his heart's desire is that God would receive glory and that his people would be protected. And these are things that are on God's heart as well. And so in saying, may he grant your heart's desire, in so much as the king's heart aligned with the heart of God, would he then grant that heart's desire? Would he fulfill all of those plans? See, as you and I are in closer relationship with God, you can probably attest to this, but you see, you desire the same things God desires. You want the same things. You start viewing sin the same way. The same way that sin is detestable to God, it becomes detestable to you. The same things that, that you want to see, the, the things of God's heart uh, come to pass, the closer you are with the Lord, the greater relationship you're in with him, you begin, your heart begins to align with his. And then you can say, may we shout with joy, for joy over your salvation in the name of our God. Set up our banners. May he fulfill, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. May all these things come to pass. See, again, the truth is this. God's help is available. What we see from this is we need to ask for it. The way that we ask for it is these petitions. Petitions is just prayers before God, asking God to work and to be present and to respond and it's a heartfelt desire for God to answer. You see, listen, church, you and I are called to petition the Lord. We're called to pray to him. We're called to bring these things to him. And I know you and I know we're supposed to pray, right? We're supposed to talk to the Lord, but do we? Do we bring these petitions before the Lord and graciously, humbly lay them at his feet, trusting that he is able and has promised to work in them? See, this is what the people of God are doing. They're petitioning the Lord to respond and to fulfill the plans and to protect the people and to bring the victory. And they do. They anticipate the victory. That's what, may we shout for joy over your salvation. God, we expect you to move and to you to answer. And so we, in, a, in expectation, may we shout for joy over what you are going to do in your name. God, in your name, will you work? Will you respond? And so I wonder if we could just make a slight change, maybe a shift in our hearts. Maybe you're already here. So maybe this isn't for all of us, but, but, but I think it might be for a lot of us. It certainly is for me. Would we pray in light of these two truths? Would we know that because of who God is, his covenantal love for his people, and because of that relationship that he has for, with us, which is made possible through Jesus Christ, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith and trust in him, as Paul and Courtney demonstrated for us, if you have proclaimed him as your Lord and Savior, if you have believed upon him for the forgiveness of your sins, God's word is clear is that you are in a right relationship because of the work of Jesus Christ. You are in a right relationship with the God of the universe. And because of who he is and our relationship with him, we can come boldly before the throne of God our access granted because of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through anything else. There's no ritual or kind of system or like thing you have to do. Jesus has already done all of that. And he's given us access to come before God and to ask and petition that he would work. And so would we pray in light of these truths? You see the way of assurance and victory, the way that we get here is met 
our, the way that our distress is met is in prayer. And if we're honest, sometimes we do everything that we can in our power except pray. Sometimes that's our last resort. Church, would it not be so of us? Would it be the first place that we turn to? Would it be the first thing that we do? When we find ourselves in times of uncertainty, anxiety, difficulty, would we take it to the Lord? Would we quiet our hearts? Would we listen to him? Would we search his word and wait for him to respond and to speak into and move in the situation? Would we ask, God, will you work? God, will you respond because of this right relationship that you have granted me? God, because of your power, according to your might, God, would you bring about salvation? Would you bring about the victory? Would you work in this? God, I ask. You see, it brings kind of a, it sort of helps weed out a lot of the kind of like insignificant prayers that we pray. And I'm not trying to like, you know, say, I mean, God cares about it all, okay? Bring it all to him. I'm not saying that. Like you can talk to him about all of the little things, but all of a sudden now the big things, sometimes the things that we're scared to pray, that we don't want to pray because we're uncertain if he's really going to respond. Like, he says, like, come to me, ask. We can bring all of this to him, petition him in prayer and pray. His help is available, but we need to respond and ask for it. You know, one thing you'll find more than anything, this is a promise, this is a guarantee, is he may not respond to the prayer or answer the prayer in the way that you think he's going to, but I do promise you this, he will always shape and change your heart in the process. That is one thing that he is always doing through prayer. God wants a greater and closer relationship, a greater humility. So many times in prayer, we recognize our pride, our arrogance, our own wisdom, our own selfishness. I mean, so many times God shapes us through prayer. Would he do that in us? Would he bring us to this place? Because God's help is available, let's ask for it. The psalm continues, verse six. Look back at your copy of scripture. It says this, now I know, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Here's the second um, thing that we see, the second uh, truth around God's uh, power is this, is that God's victory is certain. His help is available, but his victory is certain. Okay, there's no question about his victory. And so we can take action. We can move we can act trusting, knowing that God is working. So you notice the shift here to first person. This was probably a priest. Like, so there's kind of a break from the, 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 the uh, proclamation of the people and now a priest responds, right? You can kind of picture this. Like it's a priest standing up before all the people. He says, now I know, right? That the Lord saves his anointed and he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. In context, right, God saves the anointed king. That anointing is a symbol, a visible symbol of God's calling out, his setting aside for a particular time, particular person, um, in a particular situation, right? And so God's anointed king was the, the man that, that God had chosen to lead the people in that time, in that place. And there was an anointing that came on Saul when he stood up and was king, and there was a time when that anointing was left and it passed on and was given to David, Right, his successor, not his son, his successor. And so David stepped in this role. And so here, 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 what he's saying here is now the Lord saves his anointed, the one that he has chosen. So in the context, the king is protected by the God, his God, God of Jacob, the covenantal God of Israel. But I said, the royal Psalms are not, are not just Psalms um, 
that looked to the present time, but also for them looked forward to the future. They were fulfilled in the messianic king coming someday, Jesus Christ. And so the understanding would be looking forward. Did not God do this with his son, Jesus Christ? God the Father anointed his son for a particular time and a particular purpose to serve in a particular way. Jesus Christ came, was born of a man, was born as a man, right? Born of Mary, lived a life set apart for God's good work here. He was God's only son and he went to the cross for the salvation, for the forgiveness of sin and he was buried in a tomb. He died and was buried. Yet what happened? God, the father, answered him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand, he snatched him out of death and raised Jesus Christ to new life so that he is reigning victorious over death. The power of sin and Satan and death is broken by the, power of Christ, by the power of God in Jesus Christ. You see, this is the truth of God's power and it was fulfilled ultimately in the coming King, the coming Messiah. And so this was a promise that they knew. But here's the thing. We understand and know this, that God's victory is certain. How do we know that God's victory is certain? Well, the language here is super, super helpful. See, one thing I think to understand is that our view of victory is sometimes pretty um, narrowly focused, right? If you and I define victory in the situation, we might have a very narrow view of what victory is. And so we might look to the scoreboard. We say, hey, I know if I'm winning the game because my team or my, my, like my, I have more points than my opponent, right? And so that's how victory is defined. And so we take that same concept and we apply it to the situations of our life. So I know that victory is certain here. If they acknowledge that they're wrong and that I'm right, or I know that victory looks like this, I get this job or I get this opportunity or I get this house or, or this happens now or this comes to pass or whatever it might be. And you and I take and we define victory in such narrow ways. But here's the thing that we have to understand is that God's victory might look different than our victory. Are we okay with that? that sometimes what is really victory in his view is different than what you and I might define it. You see, God's is all-encompassing. We've said this before. He sees the beginning, the middle, and the end. He knows where everything is going. He sees all things played out. And so what might look like a loss right now, he's like, no, 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 the game's not over yet, right? There's overtime. I'm still working in this, or this will still come to pass. There's still more minutes on the clock, and I'm going to work. Some of you are loving the sports analogies. Others, you're like, okay, leave it behind. Like, kind of just, just like, you know, I'm not into that sports ball. But whatever you want to do, fill in the blank. That, that is his understanding with that. But the language that the psalmist uses here is super helpful. All right, there's two words that I want to look at. The first is this. Now, he says, now I know. The Hebrew word that's used there is in the perfect tense. And, um, you know, grammar is super important and helpful. Um, honestly, I always tell middle school and high school students, like, pay attention in English class. It actually will help you in your understanding of Scripture, okay? So if, you, if that can redeem uh, English for you, grammar for you, like, enjoy that because it actually helps you understand God's Word, okay? But the perfect tense in the Hebrew, what it meant was is that it, there's, like, this finality to it. And so in the sense of this word, this knowing, what it means is that this was a knowledge that has come to a complete understanding as opposed to a knowledge that was ongoing and building. So let me uh, illustrate this way. Like, you know, a child enters into preschool 
or kindergarten, right? And comes home, and maybe some of you did this, right? You think, I mean, I, I, I went home and told my mom all about like math, science, all sorts of things. I was pretty confident that she had no idea about this stuff. And my mom tells the story, like, I used to get home and I'm like, did you know? And I would like go on to explain all these things, like thinking that I had all this knowledge that she didn't have. And she would just kind of listen and like, oh, wow, that's amazing, right? But like, there's so much further that that kindergartner, first grader, second grader has to go in their knowledge and understanding. Compare that to, you know, you get in a debate, uh, argument, like disagreement with somebody and they're like, hey, by the way, just kind of side note before we get too far in this discussion, you got to know I have a doctorate in this, right? Like my PhD is in this, I did a dissertation in this, I got a, you know, I did a thesis, whatever it might be. Like I, I kind of know what I'm talking about, right? There's like a finality, a completeness to the knowledge and the understanding. And so at that point, you're kind of like, well, yeah, you might kind of have some understanding. That's, this is like sort of doctorate level knowledge. What, the, what, what, the, what they're saying here is like, I know this, like I'm not still learning this, this is certain to me. I know that I know, like the door is closed on this. I am confident of this. What am I confident of? I know that I know that the Lord saves his anointed. See, that word saves is also in the perfect tense, though a little bit different. See, this word is a verb. It describes this action that is fixed and complete, but it's referring to a future action. So like he's going to save, but it's, it's so... It's so complete in the way that it's stated. It's stated as if it's already happened. So he's going to save, but with such confidence that it's, I can already say, like, it's, it's, it's certain, right? Go back to uh, the Bucks playing the middle scorers. Like, yeah, I mean, they're going to win. They haven't won yet, but it's, it's certain. Like, there's no way, there's no way that they're going to lose. It's certain. And even more certain than that, oftentimes commentators will call this the prophetic perfect tense because it speaks of a future act as though is it already over. And so with confidence, the priest stands up or the king stands up. We don't know who, but somebody stands up and they says, listen, I know, I am certain, what? That this will come to pass, that God will save, what, who? His anointed, whom he whom God chooses to put his blessing upon. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand. This isn't coming from a place of the inability to work. God is working from his holy heaven and he has the power in his right. It's a full weight of his power is available here to do what? To save, to work. And so that's why we can say with certainty that God will get the victory. Victory is certain for our God. Do you know this? That God has a perfect record. He has never lost, not once. He hasn't even tied. He has always won and he will always win. He will always come out on top. Why? Because there is no one that compares to our God. He is always victorious. How good is that? I mean, I, like, I would like to put bets on that odds, right? Like, I know that it's going to win. I know that it's going to go. I know all of that. Like, that is the, that's, the, that's the team you want to get behind. That's the, that's the colors you want to wear. That is, listen, we are on the winning side. We are on the winning team. God has brought us to this place and he said, listen, victory, with me, victory is certain. It is certain. And so why? Because of that, we can take action. That's where it's going to. The reason that the priest stands up and says this is, listen, because victory is certain, because that we know that God will save his anointed one, we can march confidently to the battle. We can run confidently into the difficulty, into the trouble here. And so I would just say this. What is it? that God has called you to do 
from his word, from his leading, through his people that you know that you need to do, but you are scared, you're frightened, you're uncertain that he is going to act. What is that thing that God has called you to do that you need to do? Let me just get even more specific than that. Is there somebody, God has said so clearly in his word that we are to forgive as he has forgiven us. Is there somebody in your life that you have withheld forgiveness from because you want to see the situation play out differently and you just need to forgive them and put that in God's hands, trusting that he will be faithful, that in the same way that you've been forgiven, you can forgive others and that he will bring all things about, trusting him to be judged, trusting him to be confident. Is there somebody that you've withheld forgiveness from because you want to see it done. Listen, God has so clearly said, hey, forgive. Is there maybe somebody that you've been called to and you know that God wants you to share your boldness, your faith, the way that Jesus has worked in your heart and you've been nervous or scared to do it? What if the victory was certain? What if you knew they would respond, that they too would believe and that they would embrace Jesus as Savior? What if you could share your faith in the way that Jesus has worked, knowing that he will respond? Is there somebody that you've withheld reconciliation from waiting for them to move first or waiting for the situation to change or whatever it is, knowing that God has asked you, he's called you to do this? Is there some situation that you need to humble yourself, right? Set aside your pride and to believe upon God or to act humbly before God in this way? Or maybe, maybe there's some sin that you've been holding on to that you've been grasping and you're, is there something you need to repent of and say, God, I'm wrong here. I acknowledge this. I repent of this and I believe that you are able to forgive, that you are able to save. I just wonder, what is it that God is calling us to, that in the same way, knowing confidently that God will bring the victory, what is it that we are called to act, to move, to take action in? I promise you, there are things that he has called us to, and we need to move, trusting that he will bring the victory. Man, there's so much more we could say about this, but I want to get to verse seven, because it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite verses in the... Um, for certainly this psalm, even one of this, uh, the entire book of Psalms. But verse seven says this, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, right? Those that trust in chariots and horses, but we rise and stand upright. Why? O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The people are speaking again, right? The army is speaking again. Here's the truth that we see about God's power. It's this, is that God's power is mighty, so trust in him alone. I think we said it last week, but we don't need to add anything to our trust in God. We can trust in God and his working and his power alone. You see, many of the nations, they trusted in chariots and horses. This was the most advanced war machines of the day. Ironclad chariots, seasoned veteran horses, right? This is how the nations expanded their conquest, their king. So they would come into the foot soldiers, to the, to the infantry, to the, um, you know, those on the ground, and they would just wreak havoc in that because of this, this advance. So it's like today's missiles or tanks or aircraft, war tech, nuclear, whatever it might be. Like take, think of the most, like this is what the trust is. And what they're saying is our trust is not in that, it's in the mighty hand of God. We trust in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. You see, Israel was called by God, according to Israel law, that Israel should not have a standing army. Unlike us, right, our country, we have the largest in the world. We like to like, remind countries of that. Um, kings were not allowed to keep many horses. They were to keep, the, like, there was a, like, a limit to that. And God had, had, why? Because he didn't want the kings of Israel trusting in their horses and their chariots and their army. He wanted them trusting in him. 
And so trust was to fully accept the character of God as he had revealed himself in his name. And so this is what this is. Some trust in chariots, but we, we are not like that. We trust in the name of God, the name of the Lord, our God. And I wonder this morning, what is it that you've put your faith, your trust unknowingly in? Is it in your abilities, your education, your experience, your quick wit, your ability to talk around situations? Is it in your savings account? Is it in your accomplishments? Is it in the friends that you have, the family name that you carry, the neighborhood you live in, the job that you work in, whatever it is, what is it that your trust is in? What is it that's carrying you through this life that you are believing in? I would just tell you this, is that when we've set all of that aside and we put our faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone is the very best place for us to be. You know, going through this psalm, I've been reminded of all the times that I have in faith stepped out and put myself in a situation or put our family, moved our family into a situation that we needed to trust God. It's like, you know, one of those situations like, okay, God, I don't know how this is gonna work here, but I need you to work. Whenever we have stepped out in faith and done one of those things, God has always always work the most powerfully in my life in those times. Is not that the place that we want to be? In those places of comfort and security where we are not trusting in the Lord are the times that we find stale and stagnant and at times more confusing and dark if we're honest, right? He wants to move us to that. So I wonder what would it look like for us as individuals, as families, even corporately as a church, that we would place ourselves, that we would put ourselves in a place that we would trust and know that God is able to work. If I could, I'd love to just share one sort of example of this, that we see this in scripture. Um, You know, Jesus, when he was speaking to his followers, he said to them, he said, because of your little faith, because of your little faith, See, they weren't able to do what they were trying to do, but he says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will come to move and nothing will be impossible for you. You know, the reason that that statement, this mountain will move from here to there was so powerful is because that is exactly what King Herod had done. Have you heard of Herodium? Do you know about Herodium? King Herod made a mountain where a mountain did not exist. He didn't move it, but he he had slaves move move dirt toward and create a mountain. And so literally the people had seen this mountain created. And what God is saying is, listen, with faith in me, like the faith of a mustard seed, even the smallest amount of faith, if you have this, then you can say to this mountain, move and it will move. With God, it is possible. And I just think that this is such an important thing for us to understand this morning, that God is always powerful. That thing that situation, that relationship, whatever it might be that's in your life that seems immovable, God can move it. He is powerful. He is able. Do we believe this? Do we believe that he is able to do all that he would set his hand to do? And so as help is available, let's ask. The victory is certain, so let's take action. God's power is mighty, so let's trust in him alone to move. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promises that you have given us in your word. And Lord, we want to respond to them. And we want to act in, in faith and in belief, knowing that you are all that you've said you, would, uh, that you are. God, that you'll do all that you say that you'll do. And Lord, I just pray for your uh, mighty presence uh, to be at work in our life. 
Lord, that we would see and understand and know the way that you are working, God, the way that you are moving. And so, Lord, I just pray for your hand to be um, just so clearly evident. And Lord, I pray for those that are in a place of uh, uncertainty, God, anxiety, uh, perhaps doubting, even this promise, God, are you? Are you really? Are you powerful? Are you able, God? And so we just trust that, that the victory will come. Lord, our definition, your definition of victory might not be the same. So God, move our hearts toward that place. Would you align our hearts with you? Help us to understand what it is that you're doing. And God, would we trust you in that? We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.